working our way through the series. Uh, this may, this is, if you're coming in the middle of it, uh, some of this may uh, obviously not fit with where what you've been uh, may have been uh, familiar with. Some of this may be new. Can I encourage you to listen to the series uh, to catch up? And so let me launch straight in with this. Luke 24. Jesus said these words on his um, after his resurrection and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. What is that scripture that Jesus speaks it's telling us about the place of Moses and the prophets, which is essentially the, the Old Testament? What is his quintessential message? Someone tell me. Pardon? It is that. But what's he say? What is the purpose? He explained to them, what did all of those prophets, the law, its people say and point to? Jesus. Look at that. He, he went through Moses and the prophets, the Old Testament, and he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures about him. Yeah, teaching him. Absolutely, Stephanie. So he demonstrates to these disciples what no Jew had understood properly, that all of these scriptures, how many pages in the Old Testament? There's 39 books. It's at least five, six of the, new, of the Bible, if not more. All of those scriptures converge on Jesus. Jesus. We're going to have a meeting after this for Sunday school workers. And one of the things, this is still come to the meeting, okay? But one of the things we're going to talk about is the convergence of all Bible teaching on the character of Jesus. On the character of Jesus. I'm going to explain that to you more now. So let me, let's move in. We've got two headings. Firstly, this, okay, from chapter 4 and the verses that we're looking at. Hagar, Sarah, and the two covenants. Hagar, Sarah, and the two covenants. Tell me, verse 21. So we're going to work through these verses verse by verse in exactly the way Paul wrote them. I keep telling people when Paul wrote uh, his letters, he wasn't expecting us to pick them up and read half of verse 24, put it down, and then the following month read half of verse 18. Who the heck reads a letter like that? No, he expected him to read it through, and that's what we're going to do together. Verse 21, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Can you see the point he's making? It's a point of, look, you don't understand the Old Testament. You haven't, un or you haven't understood what he says. You want to be under the Old Testament? You fools. You haven't understood what it says. Because if you had, what's the implication? Because if they had understood it, what's the implication of those verses? There is that. There's more. What's the implications? Because they haven't understood it. Because if they had, they wouldn't be wanting to do. They wouldn't be going under it. That's what he's saying to them. If you'd understood the Old Testament which you clearly don't, says Paul, you would not want to be under it. Look, those of you who want to be under it, you fools, don't you understand what being under that law means? 
And now he's going to elaborate. Verse 22. For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman, the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. Simply, Hagar conceived in what we would call the natural way, okay? Through a man and a woman coming into union, okay? The natural way. How did Sarah conceive? Remember how old Abraham is? 99, okay? Through promise. Assumingly meaning that this conception was supernatural, okay? So one is by natural means, by a man and a woman sleeping together. The other is by supernatural means as a result of a promise. Here's Paul's point. Embrace yourself. It's a whopper, okay? Because Paul's going to give us a tool, a key, if you like, for how we engage with all that part of the Bible, okay? A key for how we engage with all that Bible. Listen, listen to Paul. And only Paul could say this, having been sanctioned by Jesus to speak on his behalf. If you said this, I want to listen to you. I don't care who you are, Okay? The reason we listen to Paul, he's been authorized by Jesus to speak on his behalf as the last of the apostles. And this is what he says. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. That is a whopper, okay? It's an absolute whopper. And I want to elaborate what that is. I'm going to come back to the detail of verse 24 in a bit, but I want to digress well, but it's not really digression. I want to just stop in that moment in the text and consider uh, the, the weight of what Paul is telling us before we move on. Listen to it again. These things, what things? What things? Yeah, Sarah and, and, and Hagar, Old Testament characters. These things may be taken figuratively. What, what does that mean? If you use that term. I'm speaking to you and I'm speaking figuratively. An example. These things may be taken example. They're telling us a truth other than their reality. And then it tells us what that truth is. That truth is what? The two women, the truth of those two women is what? It is trust. They represent, symbolize, illustrate Two covenants, okay? Now I want to come back to that shortly. But let me tell you at least what I feel Paul is saying here. Paul's point is, although the Old Testament is real, this is real, real history, okay? Although his characters are real, although those characters lived and performed and carried their, their, their lives in normality, Paul is suggesting that under the sovereign inspiration of providence, oversight of God, who is above all things, their lives panned out in such a way so as to, in the New Testament, do what? Under the sovereign oversight and providence of God, whereby his invisible hand steers the events, those events, those characters, their lives, under the superintendence of God, did what for the new covenant? Yes, they spoke about realities in that covenant. I think that's the point here, that the Old Testament past speaks of the New Testament uh, future 
pictorially, typologically. It's the micro playing out in the Old Testament for the macro reality in the New Testament. That's the point. The micro lives and events of people in the Old Covenant to demonstrate the macro truth of the New Covenant. So here's the thing. Why did Hagar and Sarah exist in real Jewish history? Because ultimately, under God's providential hand, their lives would tell of a reality beyond themselves. Hagar is speaking beyond Hagar's experience. Sarah is speaking beyond Sarah. It's what we call typology. We mean they become a type. Look, I'm from an engineering background. In engineering, if I want to make uh, a supporting bracket for a wheel and a vehicle, before the final one is made, what do we make? Types. Okay? We make types. We call them prototypes. Okay? Okay? But is that really what I'm trying to get? That plastic miniature component? Is that what I'm really trying to make? No, I'm trying to make a real mechanical working steel car part. And that becomes, the prototype becomes a pointer to it. And in that sense, Paul is suggesting the Old Testament is prototypical of New Testament truths. Here's what uh, a guy who's much smarter than me says on this. His name's William Hendrickson. A Bible commentator, he writes, commenting on these verses. Now, th things of this nature were spoken with another meaning in mind. Hagar and Sarah's lives had much more wealth to them than they realized for our benefit. Here's what Edgar Andrews, another Bible scholar, he writes these words. The very, and this is much stronger now from Edgar. The very purpose of the Genesis passage, according to Paul was to convey the spiritual truth that Paul is about to disclose. Can you see the strength of what Professor Andrews is saying about Hagar and Sarah's life? What's he saying about them? No, the true purpose was to speak about two covenants in Jesus' day. That's why they lived, that's why they existed, that's why they had their beings. The Old Testament occurred to teach New Testament truth. Which means the Old Testament was always to be considered as an escalator. What do you call those things in the airport that move? A travelator. Okay? Meaning, whenever you enter the Old Testament, what did you have to be doing all the time you're reading it? Towards? Jesus. Yes! Stephanie! The New Covenant, it can only ever be read in motion. If you ever stop on the travelator of the Old Covenant, you've misread it. Absolutely. And if you misread it, it could be devastational. Devastation. Let me give you an example of how... So Paul is using one example, Sarah, Sarah and Hagar. Is this principle restricted to Sarah and Hagar? No. Let me give you an example. I know we could spend forever doing this. I'll give you an example. Uh, I, I spent much of my uh, early Christianhood, uh, Christian life in a church, in a, in a Baptist church in the UK. My pastor there was doing a series once on the life of Joseph. I was a young Christian, okay? And he was preaching. Uh, we'll have the slide, please, Meg. Thank you. He was preaching about the, the life of Joseph. And as I was listening as a young Christian, I was really struggling with this because he kept saying, Here's Joseph's life, and, and he points to Jesus. 
Joseph did this, and he points to Jesus. This is what happened for Joseph. That's all about Jesus. And I'm thinking, come on, man. What are you doing? No. Those are hundreds of years apart. Two different people. And how can you possibly say that Joseph's life, which happened because of his evil brothers, peace picture in Jesus? And I really, really struggled until one day, by the grace of God, I think perhaps at Bible College, finally I understood and saw that that's exactly what Joseph's life is all about. Joseph was despised by his brothers. Jesus was despised by his brothers. Joseph was saved into slavery by his brothers. Jesus was sold to his death by his spiritual brothers, the Jewish people. The saving of uh, the events of Joseph's life turned out for the saving of the Jewish people. The events of Jesus being sold to the Romans turned out for the salvation of all of God's people. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. Jesus reveals himself beyond his resurrection to his brothers as come back to life. And just as Joseph was exalted to the highest place in the world but Pharaoh, Jesus Consequently, was exalted to the highest place in the world, Matthew 28, but the Father. And when you begin to look at it like that, what you realize is you can take Old Testament truths, Old Testament characters, Old Testament institutions, Old Testament uh, uh, material. Give me one Old Testament object that's really about a New Testament truth. Give me one. The tabernacle, a box. Housing, the presence of God, is not about that. It's ultimately about what? Yes, before then. A box housing the presence of God is ultimately about what's happening right now. It begins with a ker, and a her, and a her, and a her, and a ker, and a her. Church and the very house of God. Okay? I have to do it like that because that's how we do it with our kids. Okay? Right? That box is a picture of Jesus, who is the very presence of Jesus. And insofar as we are in Jesus, we are the body of Jesus, the church of Christ, the housing of God's presence. So the whole of the Old Testament, in the characters, in his people, in his experiences, even in his travels. Moses traveled through the Red Sea. That pictures the church going through baptism. Points to Jesus. And look, if you think I'm making this up, listen to Jesus. Luke 24, we saw it earlier. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures about himself. In John 5, 39, Jesus is, is cursing uh, the Pharisees who absolutely knew this book inside out. They knew everything. Do you know, do you know how to be in the Sanhedrin? The, 70, the, the special 70 people, to be on the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling council, you had to know off by heart the whole of the Torah and usually the whole word for word in Hebrew and Aramaic, the whole of the Old Testament. Okay? And so he says to them, you diligently study the scriptures, you know them off by heart. You can quote me the whole Old Testament. And yet, says Jesus, you know nothing, nothing. For all your study, for all your memorization, you know absolutely nothing because in reading them, you have missed the very center and essence of those texts, which is what? 
Jesus. Look at that. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life. You think that the law gives you eternal life. You fools! It doesn't. These are the scriptures and the purpose of those scriptures. The reason you have those scriptures, the reason I gave them to you through the prophets, is because their primary purpose was that they may do what? To Jesus. That's the purpose of the Old Testament. The Old Testament Psalms, Psalm 22, the Old Testament prophets, Isaiah 53, the Old Testament law, the Decalogue, the Old Testament sacrificial system, the lambs that were killed, the Old Testament feasts, the Passover, the Old Testament structures, the tabernacle, the Old Testament characters, David, the Old Testament narrative details, Hagar and Sarah, all point to New Testament truth. And in pointing to New Testament truth, they always point to the pinnacle of New Testament truth, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. In a very real sense, I've got a couple of slides here for you. When we, when we have, can you move on please? When we have the, the division in the Bible, the Old Testament really ought to be called the Old Testament hyphen, the life and times of Jesus pre-incarnation. What does that mean? Before he became flesh. The Old Testament is the biography of Jesus before he became flesh. If you don't see that, you've completely misunderstood. However much you think you know it, the Old Testament. And thus the New Testament should be labeled the life and times of Jesus post-incarnation. Again, and we're not talking about the milk. Okay? Pre-incarnation post-incarnation. That's what these two testaments are about. Now let me come back to my sermon, because I did tell you we don't do that stupid thing of reading half a verse and just preaching on that, and then choosing a different one for next week. We work our way through the text of the Bible, because that's how it was given for us to read. And so let's carry on with this uh, passage, if we can. Verse 24. These things may be taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. Hagar Sarah and the two covenants. Let me carry on. So, having labored that, verse 24, let me focus on what Paul is now saying in context for us. The women represent two covenants. What covenants are, are in mind there? What two covenants? The Mosaic covenant and, and the Jesus covenant or the, or the new covenant. Okay? But, but here's an issue. There aren't just two covenants in the Bible. There's possibly at least seven. Let me give you a list. There's the Edenic from Eden, the Adamic from Adam, that God would prosper him. The, the Noahic with Noah. What was, the, what was the Noah's covenant? The flood. The Abrahamic. The Palestinian, the one to do with the Canaan. The Davidic. What, did, what was the covenant with David? That he would have on his throne an everlasting 
dynasty, a descendant on his throne. I get several covenants in the Old Testament, but what Paul is saying, can you see? If he's taking the new covenant as one of those, which you know he is, and he's taking uh, the Abrahamic one as the other one, he's suggesting that essentially the two great covenants are, just go back for me if you will please, Meg. Oh, it's not even on there, is it? But would you just go back and go forward? Thank you. Is the one with uh, uh, Moses. I haven't even put it up there. There's, there's a Mosaic covenant there. The great covenants are the one with Moses and the one that Jesus introduces. Do you know what happened to the Abrahamic covenant? Because the one with Eden is obviously gone. The one with Noah, we, can, we see every time we see the flood. Uh, the one with the Palestinian land, we're going to talk about that another day. The Davidic one, we know is fulfilled in Jesus. Do you know what happened to the Abrahamic covenant, anybody? Does anybody know what's happened to the Abrahamic covenant? We looked at it in Galatians 3. It's, it's swallowed. It's fulfilled in the new covenant. Thanks, Sarah. The new covenant takes the Abrahamic covenant of salvation by faith and grafts it into the new covenant. So, but the point is simply this, without making it too complex. There are essentially two covenants of the Bible. The Mosaic Covenant that sums up all the Old Covenants and the Jesus Covenant, the New Covenant, that is essential to salvation. So Paul is saying there are essentially two Bible covenants. But he's saying more than that. The next thing he's saying, one covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are slaves. This is Hagar. Which of those covenants, we've already said, is from Mount Sinai? Which one started on Mount Sinai when, when with the finger of God something was written? The Mosaic Covenant. He wrote the, with his finger those Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments is the covenant. So one is from Mount Sinai. And this is something we have to understand. And this is what Paul started. Those of you who want to be in, under the Old Testament. What does that Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, written by the finger of God, written under Moses, given to Israel... What does that do to people under it, says Paul? Yes. Okay. Essential to understand. Listen to Paul. Don't ever listen to me. Okay? Don't ever listen to anything I tell you beyond Scripture. Okay? Okay. Well, let me tell you what Paul says. One covenant is from Mount Sinai. That's the Mosaic covenant. There's no other covenant made on Mount Sinai but the Mosaic one. Bears children, those who have come under its branches... And these children are slaves, not free men, slave men. And he goes, Hagar is representative of that. That's what he wants the Galatians to know who want to come into slavery. Don't you know that the old covenant, that law, those commandments only make slaves? Remember what Jesus said to the Jews? If you shall know the truth and the truth shall do what to you? Set you free from what? Moses is slavery. But when the Jews hear that, because they won't have Moses make some slaves, will they? Because they're the Jews. When they hear that, what's their response? It's in John 8. Here it is. What's their response when Jesus says, I can set you free? Ignore this for now. What do they say? You mean they slaves? Because what are you talking about? We're not slaves. Fools. That very moment they said that, they were slaves to who? In the physical world. Rome. Okay, so they were slaves, but more than that, what they don't understand what Jesus is saying is that you are slaves under Moses, 
But look at him. We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been a slave of anyone. And so he tells them plainly, anyone who sins breaks whose law? Anyone who sins breaks whose law? Moses is. And as such, Moses makes you a slave. That's why Moses' law is so dangerous, because by breaking it, you become its slave. And the, and the terrible thing is, no one can keep it, which means that no one under Moses is free. Every adherent to Moses is a slave. So he continues, one covenant, the Mosaic covenant, is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are slaves. By contrast, Sarah, her typological value in the New Covenant is that she speaks about the children of promise. The promise to who? The covenant to who? Abraham, okay? Which is engrafted into the New Covenant of Jesus. He's the free son. Those who seek to be justified by faith are her children. It's why in Galatians 5, he says these words to them in his letter. It is for freedom from Moses' slavery that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery, by the yoke of Moses, by the yoke of the Old Testament. So his point is that Sarah represents people of faith. Verse 25, he'll explain it to us. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. She's in slavery. Why does Mount Sinai and Jerusalem, why are they tied together? What relationship has Jerusalem, the real Jerusalem, got with Mount Sinai and, and they're hundreds of miles apart? What's the relationship between, would somebody let, let that person in? Uh, what, uh, what's their relationship? What's the relationship between Mount Sinai and Jerusalem? It's a center. Jerusalem is the center of the, the Mount Sinai religion. Do you get that? It's why, how do we know it's a center? What's there? Yeah, the ark is there in what building? The temple. Okay? Jerusalem is the center of the covenant of Moses. That's the point there, okay? okay? And he represents slavery. When you think of Jerusalem and the, and the temple, we, you should never have been thinking the people of God. You should have been thinking the people under slavery. Okay? That's what he represented. Okay? It's why, do you remember? So I think what we're trying to say is this, is that that Middle Eastern land of Israel and that capital Jerusalem and that structure that used to be there before the, the mosque of Oman, okay, represents not freedom and faith in Jesus, it represents slavery and damnation. Okay? Hence why Jesus said these words, and I'll elaborate them soon. John 4, when he's speaking to the woman of the well, the woman wants to know where the proper place to worship God is, and what does Jesus say to her? It's really important. What does Jesus say to her? She wants to know where the proper place to worship is, which is the, which is the real mosaic heart, where is the real place that God's presence dwells. And what does Jesus say to her? Yeah, what's his point? What's he saying about Jerusalem and Gerizim that she thought maybe? What's he saying? She wants to know where God's presence is, which city is associated with God's presence, in which city do I worship God? And what does Jesus say to her? None of them. Thank you, Sylvia. None of the above. Which is, what's he saying about Jerusalem and about the temple? Uh, uh, it's out, it's gone, it's going. The time is coming. When is that time coming? At what point did Jerusalem and the temple cease to have any significance in the future? 
when he died on the cross. Okay, that's the time that was coming. I'm going to elaborate on that in a minute, but let me just move on quickly. Verse 26. But the Jerusalem that is above, so one Jerusalem, the one in Palestine, the one that the Jews are fighting with, with the Islamists, that one only makes you slaves. It's lost all its value. It's of literally zero significance. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is the mother of Sarah's kids. Those of faith, for it's written, Be glad, O barren woman, that was Sarah, who breaks, who bears no children, break forth and cry aloud. You who have no labor pains, that was Sarah, because, because more are the children of the desolate woman than those of her who has her husband. Can you see what he's saying? You know, she hasn't got any children. What's she going to become? Sarah, the mother of? Many, many children. Not many, many physical children like the Jews thought, but many, many spiritual children. You see, we have to understand when we think Jerusalem has any significance that it's somehow the capital of where God's presence dwells, Abraham knew it had no significance because when he was in the land, what was he doing according to Hebrews 11? Next verse, please. What was he doing when he was in the land? What was he doing? He was... He knew that wasn't the center of the universe. He knew that wasn't God's own country. He knew, because he was a friend of God, that the real Jerusalem wasn't the one he was standing in. And so he traveled through Israel knowing that this is not the city of God's people. And what Paul is telling us in Galatians, that's because the city of God's people, verse 26, is the Jerusalem above. Well, let me just take you back to John 4. Here's what we're saying about what John 4 is saying, is that whatever significance is Jerusalem had before this time of Jesus and his cross, okay, once he died, he was completely robbed of all its value. And I know that, because what, what, what did God do? Look, when you finish with something, look, when I finish with this piece of paper, you know what I do? There, George. <laughs> Sorry, Lynn, that was meant for him. Okay, okay, I'll finish with it. How do I know Jesus has finished with the temple? Because he tore the curtain in two, and then, I need more paper, and then, when did he do this to it? When did he do that to it? In what year and when? The Romans. the Romans in AD 70? He destroyed it. Because he was saying, it's over. He told the woman at the well, it's over. Look, woman, that country and its temple and its covenant is all now over with his significance. Which means, don't be stupid and fight over that bit of turf in that in that region of the country. Its significance has gone. Its significance, it's over. Because now we worship God, not in Jerusalem. Where? Yes, in a place of no walls. Even in a country as backward as, as Australia. Seriously. Have you thought about it? You were doing exactly what you did in Jerusalem. You were offering lambs, except it's your body. You're sacrificing them. It's your life laid down. You're worshiping God, and his presence comes down into you through his spirit. Can you see? Even in Australia, 
God's presence now dwells. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Look, our little boy, Theo, he's hopefully not listening. Next slide. You know, he's, he's obsessed with toys, okay? And he knows he can't have every toy now, and so he forces my hand to make him these things. They're called maps. What I do, he looks through all these toy pictures, and he selects all these toys that he wants, and then I have to assimilate them all, put them on a piece of paper, and then I have to print this out. He calls it a map of his toy, uh, his toy agenda, Okay, and then he spends all day in the car, in his bedroom. He sleeps with it next to his bed, really. I have to get him out of bed every morning, right? And looking at, dreaming about these toys he's going to get, okay? And eventually we get him one of those toys. He's got one of those somewhere, I think that one. Okay, I haven't played with him for a couple of days, right? And when he gets his toy, right, you know what he does to his map? He still takes it to bed every night, and he still looks at it, and he still dreams about getting his toy. Does he? Does he? What does he do when he gets the toy? He dis- what does he do with the map? He discards the map because he's fulfilled his purpose. The thing he was pointing to, he now has. And now that he's got the reality, the temple, the tabernacle, the Mosaic covenant, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament prophets, the Old Testament people, the Old Testament narratives, what a picture map of Jesus. And now that we have Jesus, what do you do with a picture map? You throw it away. That city and that place has lost its significance. That doesn't mean we throw the Old Testament away, because what it does mean is, when we read the Old Testament, we're no longer reading it, okay, to enjoy a future reality. We're now looking back, Theo could pick up this map and look at it and think, one day, I used to think about that toy imagery. But now I have the reality. Which means when you pick up the Old Testament, you now have Jesus. What are you thinking? This is all the picture map of Jesus. And now that I've got Jesus, I can relate it much easier because now it's now already in hindsight. That's how you read it. You're just looking at the picture map of Jesus. But you don't dwell on it, and you don't stop doing it, and you don't stop putting it up on your wall as your law, because you've got the reality. You've got Jesus. You'd be stupid, seriously, to be looking at the picture map. But the Jerusalem that is above is free. I've got to be quick. I've got two minutes, okay? Three minutes. Uh, now you, brothers. I've actually got seven minutes, but our service is delayed. So I've got seven minutes, so I'm going to try and do it in three minutes. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. What did Hagar's son do to Ishmael, do to Sarah's son, Isaac? He persecuted, he harassed him, okay? And he's saying... Just like that happened then, it's happening now. Because remember, they had a picture. Hagar's son is a picture of the law. Uh, Sarah's son is a picture of grace and faith. What's happening now to the Galatians? The law people, the Judaizers from Jerusalem, are doing what to the people, Sarah's sons? She's harassing them. She's throwing bricks at them. Saying, you're not a real son. You're not a real son. I'm the real son. If you want to be a real son, get a load of Moses. 
Okay, so the same thing is happening. Just as back then in the, in, the, in the actual pictures, so in what the pictures pointed to, it is the same now. So verse 30, listen to this. And this is one of the strongest arguments for how you handle the Old Testament. But what does the scripture say? Okay, what does the scripture say? When the, the son of Hagar was persecuting the son of Sarah, what, did, what, what, did, what happened? And what is the scripture therefore saying? Will never happen. Get rid of the slave woman and her son. Paul is bringing that into the new covenant because verse 31 says, therefore, do that. Look, what do the scriptures say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. Verse 31, therefore, follow on. What's he saying about what the Christian must do with Moses and his covenant and all his laws, now that we're from, from, can you go back please? What must they do? Backwards, thank you. What must they do? It's a strong statement. You want to know what to do with the Old Testament law? What to do with Moses? What must we do according to the command of Paul? Get rid of it! I didn't say that. Did you hear me say that? Did you hear me say that? No, Sarah. I haven't said it. Okay. I haven't said that. Don't find me over this. I have not said that. I would dare not say that. But the Apostle Paul says it. Get rid of Moses. Get rid of his law. It has no part in God's future. Look at the next verse. It has no part in the future. Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's sons, all who are under Moses, will never share the inheritance of salvation. Never. The only way they'll ever get a share of the inheritance is to do what? Is to, is to give up Moses, believe on Jesus, and embrace Jesus alone. Okay, get rid of the slave woman and her son. She'll never inherit the kingdom. I need to finish. My time is up. Let me leave you with this. That, that's it. Thank you. More, uh, uh, Pete's wife. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting old. I'll be 46 this year. I mean, now come on. Give me, give, give me, you know, give me some uh, uh, leash space here. Uh, but what does the scripture say? Get rid of the woman, slave woman and her son, Moses' law. Because they will never be children, for we are children of the free woman. I want to say this in closing, friends. I've said it a few times in Galatians. I'm just going to say it again. And just pretend you're the woman at the well. Look, what are you going on about all that stuff? The time has come when you'll worship the Father, neither on that mountain nor this one. All who worship him must worship him in the... We have to trust him. You have to worship him in spirit. That means by his Holy Spirit and by truth, by the truth of Jesus. Jesus is the way. Let me say two things. One to those who may be new to Christianity. One to those who are in Christianity. If you're new to Christianity, you don't need a set of laws to get you heaven. In fact, if you're trying to keep a set of laws, those Ten Commandments or otherwise... The Bible says you're damned to hell. He's got to be. If you're trying to keep some laws, you're damned, says Jesus. You need 
Jesus. Faith and trust in Him. Nothing more. And let me say this to those of us who are in faith. We don't need to keep adding and building. You have faith in Jesus. It's all we're required to get us into heaven. When we stand before, when we stand before Jesus, and if he does really ask you, why should I lay you in? If we quote a single law, we'll be damned. If we quote a single law, a single thing we've done, an ounce of things that have contributed, one place I've gone to, one thing I've achieved, we'll be instantly damned. The only thing that will get us across the threshold is that we declare faith in Jesus. Friends, Sarah and the Hagar and the, and the two covenants tell us that salvation is found in no other than in Jesus Christ. And may he, not Moses, be our hero. Amen.